I'm going to get started because otherwise you all will want to be leaving here in about 10 minutes and then I'll still be talking. So we're going to talk about fasting tonight. One of the topics that was brought up, one of the topics that was requested, of course, with prayer was also fasting. So a couple of three options for you. Um, besides what we're going to look at tonight when it comes to fasting, there are some books. Now, I've read these two books. I haven't ever read this book. Um, this book actually came from, I'm pretty sure Mo gave this to me, from Randy McFarland's library. Would that be you? Randy McFarland? No? Randy Faulkner? Well, it doesn't. It says Randy McFarland. Really? It doesn't say Randy Faulkner, but I thought maybe this is one of the ones I got from you. But okay, so so these two books, like I said, I haven't read this one. I'm sure it's fascinating, but I have read these two, and this book is very convicting about fasting and the lack of our discipline of fasting. This guy would be more of a charismatic, um, has done numerous fat, done numerous fasts for an extended period of time. Now when I read it, the, re- the way I read stuff is I highlight and underline stuff. So you're more welcome to use this and read it if you want to read it. I just There's going to be markings in it, but this is a really good book having to do with not only why he fasts, but how he fast, and then this book um, is written by a guy by the name of Ronnie Floyd. Ronnie Floyd was a longtime pastor up in Northwest Arkansas, president of the Southern Baptist Convention for a couple years, was the executive director, pretty much like what Todd Fisher is to Oklahoma as far as the state director. He was the national director. He has um, not. Not braggadocious, but he has testified on numerous occasions of doing some long, like a 40-day fast. And so in this book, he talks about the importance and the practice of both fasting, but also prayer. And how you can't do one without the other. You can't, there's no way that you're going to fast without prayer. And if you're going to have a discipline and a rhythm of prayer, then it's just going to naturally include some feature of fasting along with it. And so, this was also a really good book. One of these books that you're reading and you're just like, oh, I'm a failure. Oh, I don't do that. Oh, I need to do better. Oh, I need to try harder. But this is a really good book just to talk about about what it is that we're supposed to be doing. And they offer not only some personal testimonies, but then they also offer some practical um, suggestions on how to go about it. So, Matthew 6 is where we're going to be at because it is probably one of the most popular passages that we think about when it comes to the concept of fasting. When it comes to the questions about fasting, this is probably the most popular place that we think about. Primarily the, the three vo- the three verses that a lot of times people think about when it comes to fasting is Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. And this is what my copy says. And when you fast, so this is Jesus, He's speaking during the Sermon on the Mount, and He makes these yeah, continuing statement, and He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now based upon this text, the 
does this answer the questions, give us any idea, or maybe apart from this text, give me some ideas of what it, what in your mind, what does it mean to fast? To starve yourself. To starve yourself. Okay. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Whatever you're fasting. Okay. Any other? Yes, sir. Um, to fast like. Not eat greasy foods. Okay, not eat greasy foods. Alright. I think a lot of us are brought up and we already have this idea of what it means to fast. And what, what a fast looks like. But sometimes we can be a little bit confused as far as exactly what that entails. Anybody know on the calendar what was significant about last Wednesday? Ash Wednesday. Now, what does Ash Wednesday represent? Jesus, Jesus fasting for 40 days before Easter. Okay. Like that's whenever they celebrate. Just kind of, yeah, for the 40 days before leading up to Easter. Lent, Lent. Okay, so you have, so you have leading up to Easter, you have about six and a half weeks. So this is the Catholic. This is mainly a Eastern Orthodox Catholic tradition. Um, you have leading up to Easter, you have a time of prayer, fasting, and preparation. And that time of prayer, fasting, and preparation is called Lent. And the idea behind Lent is they usually make it about six and a half weeks. They usually take off Saturdays and Sundays, depending on the tradition. Some of them just take off on Sundays. Some of them take Take off on Saturdays and Sundays, but this idea of preparation leading up to Easter, there's a time, a focused time of prayer, fasting, and preparation for Easter. They call it Lent. The day that kicks that whole season off, it's usually around 40 days, um, depending on if you add the weekends or don't, 40 days of that prayer and fasting, that first day is considered Ash Wednesday. Why do they call it Ash Wednesday? Whenever you would fast, you would tear your clothes and you would set gnashes. Okay. How would how would be a traditional way of identifying those right? Okay, so traditionally they would take a they say they would take ashes, right? And they would wet the ashes and they would draw a cross on your forehead as a sign of entering into that Ash Wednesday, right? Now, what would they make the 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 substance out of? Ashes, so just ash and water? Oil, oil. Why do they not use ash and water? Because ash and water makes lye. <laughs> and lye <laughs> has, some, has some physical consequences in high doses if you get around lye. So the traditional way is yes, they would use the ashes and sometimes they would the, the, the tradition was is they would use the palm leaves that they'd used for Palm Sunday the year before. How when Jesus is coming in and that's the Sunday before Easter and Palm Sunday, they would save those palm branches and then they would burn those palm branches and those palm leaves use the ashes from those and then use oil. And it's not a big deal because we don't really practice it today, but if we were to take those ashes and put them with water, we're making lye, and that could have some dangerous effects. So they would take the oil, like the anointing oil, or the, the, uh, the, the, the holy oil, if you will, and they would mix that with the ashes. And then if you were going to symbolize that you were entering into this time of Lent, <clears throat> they would take that that dip their finger in those ashes and that oil and then put that cross on your forehead as saying, I'm doing that. Now, that 40 days of Lent, what do you do? 
We know it's prayer. We know it's fasting. We know it's preparation. But fasting from what? Give up something. You give up something. That's right. Now, traditionally, there was uh, kind of a set, this is what this is how you fast, this is what you fast from. Now it's been kind of adopted that everybody gives up a practice or a desire or a hobby. Everybody gives up something for Lent is how they talk about it. In the Islamic tradition, they have a period called Ramadan. And in the period of Ramadan, that is the period of time where most of the Muslim men are expected to make the trip to Mecca. Okay? So what they do is, is from sun up to sun down, they are fasting. And they're traveling. And so during Ramadan, they can eat after it's after the sun has gone down, but from sunrise to sunset, Muslim men are not supposed to, during Ramadan, eat. And they become very agitated. And they're very hard to get along with. Especially if you're a U.S. soldier in their country. They don't like you. Especially during Ramadan, because it's considered a high holy period of time and they feel like you are there being disrespectful and uh, being blasphemous but at the same time can you imagine just a bunch of guys um, hungry all day long and they get like a little cranky okay so Lent has now taken on this idea of I'm going to give up something and so sometimes people will say things like well I'm going to give up watching television for Lent or I'm going to give up drinking soda water for Lent or I'm going to give up maybe uh driving fast for Lent. Or I'm going to give up, you know, maybe uh, eating shortbread cookies for Lent. And we start having these ideas about things we're giving up for Lent. And I'm not saying those are bad. I'm just saying sometimes that mentality or that idea can bleed over into our idea of fasting. So we start thinking that fasting can be anything that we do not do. So what I'm going to try to do tonight is work on a definition about fasting. Look at some Old Testament examples that we have about fasting. We look at some New Testament examples about fasting. And then just try to look at some practical examples or some applications about what fasting really is. So, go to a definition of fasting. If you're here in Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may seem by others. That word there, fast, in verse 16, both places, it comes from the original word of nestuo. Now, you look up the definition of nestuo in some type of a Greek dictionary. It just simply means to go without food for a set time as a religious duty, or it is a description of someone who has not eaten. And throughout Scripture, we're going to see that the example that we have when it comes to biblical examples of fasting is where it is the individual or the group of people who are abstaining from food and or drink for a set period of time. I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that saying, well, I'm not going to watch Johnny Cash for the entire time of Lent. That's that's a form of fasting. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying the examples that we have is when people fasted, they gave up food and or drink for the sake of searching the Lord or seeking the Lord or that time before the Lord. That's the examples that we have. Now, if other people want to say, well, I'm going to give up sugar for Lent or I'm going to give up 
carbohydrates for Lent or I'm going to give up this hobby for Lent or for fasting or this is what I do. I'm not saying those are wrong. I'm just saying those don't comply with the examples that we have. So in the Old Testament, if you want to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we have some examples of fasting. Now, if you have a, a study Bible like I do, and I'm looking for the ideas or the instances of fasting, the study Bible committee actually said that when you go back to Leviticus 16, they give an example of fasting there. The problem is when you go back to Leviticus 16, they're talking about the Day of Atonement and that language he talks about afflicting yourselves. Now some people, some scholars would say, oh, well see, that idea of afflicting yourself, that meant fasting. The concern I have, the hesitation I have, is it doesn't say to fast on the Day of Atonement. It says to afflict yourself. I think if God wanted us to fast, then He could say, fast. So, I have a hard time using that as the first example. Rather, I would lean towards 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're coming on the consequence side of David's actions. David was married. Supposed to be out with the army at battle. It stayed behind, was on his rooftop, walking around on his rooftop on the king's palace. Saw Bathsheba bathing in a few housetops over. Lusted, desired, called for her. She was brought into his house. He had sex with her. She became pregnant. He contrived a plot to pin the child on her husband Uriah. So called Uriah back from the battle thinking that he would go in and enjoy his the fruits of his marriage. He had character and he had integrity and he would not do such a thing when his fellow soldiers were still afield and he would not sleep with his wife. After David realized that that plan would not work and he would be found out as not only being an adulterer, but he would be found out as being a liar and a cheat, he then chose to have Uriah killed on the battlefield. Not that he killed Uriah, but in the way that he placed Uriah on the battlefield, he knew that Uriah would be certainly killed. And then once Uriah was killed, then David then took Bathsheba as his wife. And oh yeah, by the way, she's pregnant. And you know what? This is some supernatural pregnancy because she's already four months along. Even though we've only been married for about two weeks. There's some of those marriages that still happen today. They get married and it just so happens she's six months along when she said I do. And they're like, oh, surprise. So those things can still sometimes take place. The problem was, is God knew. He sends Nathan the prophet. Nathan comes in, tells the story about the rich man stealing the poor man's lamb. David gets mad, says the rich man deserves to die. Nathan points his finger in David's face and says, You are the rich man. And he says, This is what's going to happen. Bathsheba is going to have the child and God is going to take the life of the child. So, you get down to 2 Samuel 12 and verse 15 at the last part. Or I'm just going to start in verse 15. It says, Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and she became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted, and went in and lay all night on the ground. So he goes in there, 
And he's seeking the face of God. He's seeking the heart of God. He's seeking the favor of God. He's seeking the mercy of God. He's seeking the grace of God. And he goes in there and this concept of fasting is he puts himself on the ground and says, I am not going to eat and I am not going to drink because I am going to humble myself and cry out for the mercy of God. Now the story as the story goes, you can continue reading on. I'm not going to for the sake of time, but as the story goes, the child dies. David's servants trying to figure out how to tell him. David realizes that what they're talking about in the corner, the child's died. And then he gets up and he uh, washes his face. Verse, this is verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he had asked, they set food before him and he ate. Well, then he had some services like, we don't understand. While the child was living, you were sitting there fasting and just... In desperation, calling out for the favor of God and the blessing of God. And now that the child has died, instead of acting like you did beforehand, it's kind of weird. We expect for you to be mourning and and, and fasting now. And he said, no, no, I was doing this as an act of penitence. I was doing this as an act of seeking God's face while the child was alive. Now the child has passed away. Now I know that... I will see the child again, but this need of fasting is no longer there. You got 2 Samuel 12 as an example of how David fasted. 2 Chronicles, to your right. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We see another example of how fasting is employed in the pages of the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 20. We're in that whole list of, and this is where it gets confusing to me, you have the southern kingdom, which is the two tribes of Judah, right? And then you have the ten northern tribes, which would be the ten northern tribes of Israel, right? And then you get into the kings and the chronicles, and they are... They are tracking the chronological timeline of both kingdoms. But if you're reading out your Bible, maybe you don't, I get confused. Now where is this guy at? Who's going on here? And then it seems like we jump back and we jump back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I get confused. At least when you're watching a TV show, they jump back and forth. At least you can tell by the figure and the face. You know, that's the character. That's the scene. And sometimes when you come like and you're reading a book and they jump back and forth between different characters. At least you got a name to go by. It's something you can recognize. I get in here and I'm telling you, I can get confused about where am I talking about? Am I talking about Judah? Am I talking about Israel? And where am I at in the timeline? And where is all of this going on? So if you find yourself in the same spot, take heart. <laughs> take heart. Now you can find, especially nowadays, and all of the all of the media sources that are out there, I mean, you can find charts and you can find timelines that you can locate either on the interweb or you can find out like a Mardell or somewhere like that where they'll like have it laid out there in a visual way that you can see here are the kings in order of Judah, here are the kings in order of Israel, so that way it might help you as you're reading through it. One of the things that also has helped me is I spent a, a season of time reading through the Bible chronologically. And sometimes when you get into First and Second Chronicles, it doesn't give it to us in a chronological timeline. So I was reading through the Bible chronologically, and that helped me try to keep them straight. But still to this day, if you catch me on a good Tuesday afternoon and say, quick, when the kingdom divided after Solomon, was it Rehoboam or Jeroboam? Which one went where? Uh... 
that was in the right and I think about, I, I try to remember that because Rehoboam R, R is right same way I think about politically red and that's politics so it's just that's what I that's the way I try to think about it but still I get confused between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and that's right there at the very beginning right so Second Chronicles you got a guy by the name of Jehoshaphat he's like well where was Jehoshaphat in this whole time period you can go back and look at it, and you can use that as a little time of study. Jehoshaphat was one of the leaders. And it says in verse 1, And after this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Menuhites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazanon Tamar. That is in Gedi. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast through all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Now it gives us some geographical keys right there. Edom was considered south of what is now modern day Israel and the promised land. Edom was down there south. That's where Esau had dwelled and settled. The Edomites are descendants from Esau. So it's the people who are coming up from the south. But we have the picture. There's Jehoshaphat and the two southern tribes. He is there and some people come up and say, you know what? There is a whole whole bunch of people coming up here to kill you and break your stuff and take the stuff that belongs to you. And Jehoshaphat said, Eek Gad, I am in trouble. And what does he do in verse 3? He was afraid. He said his fate to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a fast. He needed help. He needed guidance. He needed direction. He needed God to show them what to do. So they called for a fast. Same idea. A fast was simply they were going to not eat, possibly not even drink, to seek God's guidance and seek God's direction for their life. One more example. Keep going to your right to Esther. Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, somewhere in that neighborhood. You go to, you go to Esther chapter 4. Remember the story of Esther. She is the niece of a man by the name of who? Mordecai. Mordecai. Okay? So Mordecai is her uncle. Mordecai is pretty much raising her as his own daughter. King gets mad at his wife. What was the name of the wife? Vashti. So the king gets mad at the wife. Vashti puts her away, decides they're going to decide they're going to have a new queen. So they start a Miss America, Miss uh, Miss. Uh, Miss Persia contest and they decide they're going to do that and a chain of events Esther gets chosen oh there's so there's so much stuff we could argue about and uh, question about here in this whole saga but what happens is Esther eventually gets placed as queen over the land and then there was a guy in the the kingdom pretty much second in command by the name of who? Haman 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 did not like Mordecai. He and Mordecai had a falling out. And because he realized that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman devised a plot that he was going to get all the Jews killed because of one guy named Mordecai. So Haman devises this plot, goes into the king. King gets duped, signs off on this plot and this plan to kill all the Jews. Mordecai finds out about it. Mordecai goes, oop, this isn't good. This is the bad thing. And he reaches out to Esther and says, Esther, we need you to pull some strings for us. You see, you are the queen 
to the king and we need you to go talk to the king and tell the king this isn't going to work and get the king to change his mind. The problem was, in that tradition, it wasn't like it is today. Queen Esther did not just have the right to just stroll into the king's throne place anytime she wanted to. She had to be called. She had to be summoned. If she did not, if she was not called and not summoned and just walked in and it displeased him, he could ever kill. He could ever remove. There's all kinds of negative things that can happen. So she's coming back to Mordecai and she's saying, Mordecai, guess what? I am not allowed to go in there unless I am asked and I have not been asked. So unless I'm asked, I'm not going to go in there and talk to him. I don't know what to tell you. Have a good time. Good luck to you. And then you get to Esther chapter 4 and verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he looks at her and says, God will take care of us one way or the other. But if you don't step up and you don't step out and you don't step in for your people, your people, your family may die. God will bring deliverance from another way. And could it be that God has you in the spot for this very purpose? Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for these three days, or three days, night or day. And I, am a young woman, will also fast as you do. And I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So the example that we have here is they do fast from both food and drink for three days. Why? Because what they're doing is they're seeking the favor of God in what they're trying to do. They understood that there was a challenge. They understood there was an obstacle. They understood there was something that was in front of them that they needed help beyond their abilities. And they needed something, they needed God to do something that only they believed that God could do. So, three examples right there about the Old Testament fast. Now, let's go then back to Matthew chapter 6. Let's talk about some examples that we have in the New Testament about fasting. So, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus really doesn't give us a prescription of the way to go about it. Rather, what he is saying is, is be careful that when you do it, that's verse 16, and when you fast, verse 17, but when you fast, there's this attitude, this expectation that God expects them to fast, but God also, Jesus, I'm sorry, also wants to emphasize that when you do it, don't do it just for the show. Don't do it just to be seen. Now, I wish Jesus had given us a little bit more as far as what days of the weeks, what should be the, what should be the rhythm of the fasting, what should we do when we're fasting. I wish there was a lot more explanation. But the main thing that Jesus is concerned about right here in Matthew chapter 6 is that when you do it, make sure that you're not doing it for the visual, the visual aspect of other people. That makes sense. And where it comes from, this idea, if you were to go back, and you may mark it there in your Bible, if you go back to Isaiah 58, Isaiah 
in his prophecy on behalf of God is speaking to the people and as he's coming to them and he is holding them to task for what they're doing. And he says, why have we fasted and you see it not? He's speaking on behalf of the people and Isaiah is looking at God and going, we fasted but you haven't seen. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the days of your... And then God then answers through Isaiah and says, Behold, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. The warning that God gives to the mouth of Isaiah is there was people that were going through the work, they were going through the motions, and they're going through the action, and God says you're missing the point of what this is to be about. This isn't to go around and going, oh, you know what? I'm fasting. Oh, look at me. I'm super spiritual. Oh, look at me. I'm super devoted to Jesus. Oh, look at me. He says, no, that's not the point. The point is not what people see or what people think about you. Fasting is a private matter is a private matter between you and God so Jesus says your father who sees in secret will reward you there's another example that we see in Matthew chapter 9 Matthew chapter 9 there's some, there's some questions that come up about the timing of fasting. Now Jesus speaks to the practice, if you will, of fasting in Matthew chapter 6, but then in Matthew chapter 9, He talks about the timing of fasting. So you get down to verse 14, and there's some guys that come to Him and say, listen, the disciples of John, and the Pharisees, and these other people, they're doing all this fasting, and yet Jesus, the people that follow you, they're not observing this regular rhythm of fasting. And Jesus' response can be a bit baffling, hard to understand, because He says there in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The best that I can understand what Jesus is trying to explain is, is that, hey, I am here so they don't need to fast to draw, to draw closer to me. Now when I am not here, then they will fast. But while I am here, they have no need of fasting. Kind of giving us this insight that when we fast, what we're doing is, is we're seeking to grow closer to God. We're seeking to be more intimate with the life and the ministry and the heart of Jesus. That is what we're doing in fasting, is we're seeking to grow in greater intimacy with our spiritual Father. Now I wish that I could take you to all the other examples in the New Testament where Paul preaches and teaches about fasting and there's this whole laundry list of explanations of the do's and the don'ts and the how's and the for sure's, all that's listed out there. But I don't, I have not found such a text in the New Testament that gives us as clear of an example when it comes to fasting. There's a couple of parallel passages you'll see like in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5 to here to Matthew chapter 9. But by and large, there is not a lot of material, especially in the pages of the New Testament, that deal with fasting. Which is why I think that we have so many different variations of what fasting is and the purpose of fasting and the idea of fasting in our time today. That's why I recommend a couple of books like these that kind of help give us some ideas and give us some framework. So then what I want to do is just let's look at some maybe some practical applications that we can glean, not only from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. I'm just going to use the word fast. 
I'm going to use the word fast, and we're going to talk about just some practical applications in four different ways. Our focus, our attitude, what we're seeking, and time. To think about how we fast. Now Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 when you fast. So there's a certain expectation that we will fast. The examples that we have from the Old Testament is when they fasted, they did without food. Now I realize that there are going to be some people that are going to say, well, medically, being going without food is not a possibility. That is true for a very, 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 very small percentage of people. The vast majority of us, it's not a medical thing, it's a personal discipline thing. Me included, (laughs) me included, majority of us, it's a personal discipline thing. Now there are preparations that a person does if they're going to engage on a 40 day fast, how you're going to fast for 40 days without wrecking your body physically. I understand those are there, but I'm just going to tell you that I don't think any of us in this room are like, hey, we're going to start a 40 day fast tomorrow. We need to know how to do it. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Why 40 days? So a lot of times people use a 40-day fast because of when Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted. Matthew chapter 4, he was in the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days. And it said that while he was there, he did not eat for 40 days. Also, when you go to the book of Exodus, as we'll see at some point and somewhere down the road, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, he is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he doesn't eat or drink for those 40 days while he's up there. So 40 is a number. And Ronnie Floyd talks about in his book that 40 is a special number in in the realm of God. You'll see 40 as a popular number when it comes to God. They talk about 7 being the number of perfection. Do what? I think it's completion. 40 may be the maybe the number of completion, but they'll talk about this 40 idea. So just as Jesus, I, I'm sorry, as Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days, and then you have Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days. So some people use this 40 days as a as kind of a rule. So when they talk about this, I mean there's there. But it'd be the same thing as if you and I decided we're gonna start running tomorrow and somebody decides they're gonna run a marathon. It would be foolish for any of us to think we're in the morning, we're going to run a marathon having not ran today or yesterday, right? So some of those things you build up to and some of those things you practice and some of those disciplines are like muscles that you need to exercise. So I understand that on the outset there may be some, uh, well, medical or physical, those may be concerns there. I'm not trying to discount those. I'm just trying to say that the majority of us, every single one of us in this room can fast right now. In one shape or form. So let's look at just some practical applications. Focus, attitude, what you're seeking, and your timing. The first one is focus. When we think about fasting, the examples that we have from the Old Testament, example of that, the two examples that I pointed out to you, Matthew 6 and Matthew 8, sorry, Matthew 9 has to do with our focus. What are we fasting from and how are we going to fast? What is the focus of our fast? Are we going to say, well, I'm going to fast from food? Absolutely. You can fast from food. Then you can say, well, what kind of food? And you can maybe say a certain type of food. I mean, those are there. But the question is, is what is the focus of the fasting? Is the focus to say, well, I'm going to fast from croutons, and I'm not going to eat croutons at all. Is that the focus? No. The focus is, is I am putting those things away so that I may put away those distractions so that I may then better focus on God. This goes back to the idea of like Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. 
Paul says, my determined purpose is that I may know Him. The purpose, the focus of our fast is not what we're fasting from, but what we are seeking to fast to. So the idea is that we put this stuff away so that we can be better focused on God. And the question is, what is our focus while we are fasting? Are we wanting to be seen? Are we wanting to be known? Or maybe another question to ask, what are we... What, 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 what's, what's, the, what's the... What's the why of our fasting? Are we fasting just to fast? I'm supposed to do it, so I'm going to do it. Or are we doing it because we're we're wanting to present ourselves to God? Is it about our relationship or about religion? Correct. Correct. Yeah, I mean, there's a question of what is the focus of our fast? And, and a lot of times, we can get lost. And if the focus of my fast is just to check a box, the focus of my fast is just so I can feel better about myself, the focus of my fast is so I can look at all you all and say, oh, you know, I fast once, you know, once a week. Mm, look at me. And if that's the focus of why I'm fasting, then I'm missing the point of fasting. I was always told on fasting, it's like partaking of the Lord's Supper. Like, you need to, the fast is to be in constant prayer, you know, in fellowship with God more than you are on a daily basis. Yes. And that's, and that's the, the, the idea. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. That's what we see the two examples in the New Testament. What they were doing is, is they were putting away the food, and in place of the food, they were using that to pray. So, in that Old Testament picture, in the Old Testament tradition, you imagine food wasn't pulling a TV dinner out of the freezer and putting it in the microwave and then taking it out of the microwave and sitting on your TV tray there in the living room, right? Food was a lot more involved. There was fire. There was killing of something. There was preparation of something. There was grinding of something. There was mixing of something. There was rendering or something. And so you think about the amount of time that those Old Testament people spent in the preparation of food. They would spend hours and hours and hours preparing meals. And so the idea was, is if you're fasting, then all of those hours that you're spent in the preparation of meals, you take all that time and you re-divert it and you refocus it to your time of prayer. Now there's some other physical things that we could go into as far as that when you do that, there's all kinds of your blood sugar levels out. There's some clarity that comes with fasting. There's some, they talk about intermittent fasting and how there's some health benefits that come with that. And so some people, both these guys talk about how they feel like they become um, just clear-headed and they, and they feel like they get a lot more um, insight when they sit there and they get away from that food and it's like their body detoxes and they're able to just see things in a level that they hadn't seen things before and they talk about those health benefits and they talk about those, uh, those additional things but the question is, is what is the focus of my fasting? The focus of my fasting should be on God and my relationship with Jesus. If the focus of my fasting is to brag before the people or to be seen by other people, then I'm missing the focus of fasting, which that ties into our attitude. Then when it comes time to fast, it is good for us to ask, what is the purpose of my fasting? Am I fasting to mark a box? Am I fasting just to say, all right, Jesus, I fasted, so now give me what I want. No, we fast because we're desperate. We fast because we're dependent. Jehoshaphat, David, Esther, 
They all fasted because they needed God in a way that they had not experienced God up to this point. They were in desperation for God. And so when we fast, we need to check our attitude. Fasting is denying ourselves and moving the distractions away so that we can better hear from our Creator. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a temptation to become a little bit cranky about the spiritual disciplines. Why do I need to read my Bible every day? Why should I pray on a regular basis? Why should I love them? Why should I why should I try to be kind and sweet? Why should I do these? And sometimes you just like want a way to get out. There's a there's an old David Allen Coe song. I don't know why I'm quoting David Allen Coe in church, but there's no old David Allen Coe song. Coe, David Allen Coe song, and the the catchphrase is, "I need some time off for bad behavior." And the whole crutch of the song is he is saying that, "Hey, I've been minding my manners. I've been doing what I'm supposed to be doing all week long, and now I need some time off for bad." Behavior, And sometimes I kind of think that in our humanity, we start to think, alright God, I've been a Christian long enough. I've been doing the right Christianese thing. I need a little time off for some bad behavior to kind of do the things that I want to do. He talks about, what is it, what is the word, the line in the song? I'm up at the, I'm up and gone at the crack of dawn working like a regular dog to keep the, water and the lights and the phone turned on. And it's the idea that I've been working and I've been struggling to take care of the house and now I need some time to go and uh, do some dumb stuff. And sometimes we do that in our Christianity, don't we? Sometimes we get that attitude. Alright God, you know what? I've, I've been good all week long. Now I need that half gallon of ice cream to kind of help settle myself out. Right? Sometimes we do that. So sometimes when it comes to fasting, we can come in with a bad attitude. We can come in like, I don't want to do this. I shouldn't have to do this. I'm begrudging to do this. I'm going to tell you, if you come into it and you got a really terrible attitude about it and you're pouting about it and you, you just got your lip down, don't do it. You're missing the point. You're missing the purpose of why you're fasting. If you do it with a terrible attitude, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And you go back to Matthew chapter 6, those Pharisees were doing it, not because they were in love with Jesus, but because they were in love with the opinion of other people. So we've got to be careful. We gotta be careful about knowing what the focus is of our fasting. The focus is on God. The attitude of our fasting is we are doing it because we need God. Third one is what we're seeking. What are we seeking in our fast? Samuel was seeking mercy from God for the life of his child. Jehoshaphat was seeking guidance and direction of God for the enemy that was at the gate. Esther was seeking favor and blessings of God for the fate of her people. When we come and fast, what are we fasting for? Now, I'm not saying that you have to have a whole to-do list. God, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. But I don't think it hurts to come and say, God, I need direction here. God, I need confirmation here. God, I need your, your wisdom here. Let me give you an example.
ever since last July continued to pray about, and I don't, want, I don't want you walking out wrong, been praying about Family Bible Church. So we talked about this last July. And there was lots of differences of opinions, right? I told you last July, okay, we're going to set this aside, but I told you last July, it's still here. It's still, it's still on me. So what have I been doing? I, my intention, my desire is once a week to fast from a meal. I don't try to do a whole, whole day long thing because of the work schedule and something like that. I mean, it's just not going to do much sense if I skip eating, but then all I'm doing is working. I, I can't, it, it misses the point to skip eating. And the idea is to then use that time for prayer. And if I'm not going to use that time for prayer, then I'm missing the whole idea behind it. But what I, my intention is, is once a week to uh, skip a meal with the intentionality of saying, I'm going to use that time where I would normally eat to pray. To pray about, hey, God, if that's not your will, then take it off my heart. If that is your will, then put it on other people's hearts. I mean, do do something I'm asking in my in that one meal a week. Okay, so this isn't something like you're like, oh, just one meal a week. Yeah, I'm not talking about anything 40 days. I'm not talking about seven days. I'm not talking about something that is way out there and unattainable. It's just the idea that I'm going to have a set time that I'm going to put away from what I normally do and what I normally want, and I'm going to discipline myself to seek the face of God because I have a request, because I I am looking for answers and I'm looking for guidance and direction from God. So we ask ourselves, what are we seeking? What are we seeking when we're fasting? All three examples you have from the Old Testament is they were seeking the direction of God. So if you get ready to fast, you say, I want to do more than just one meal. Great. Do more than one meal. You want to do a day? Great. Do it two days. Great. Three days. I'm not saying there's any limit. I'm just saying is, is when you're doing it, why am I fasting? And you may find yourself going, well, I really don't have anything I need to fast for then. So see, I'm off the hook. I don't need to fast. I suspect, (laughs) I suspect if you spend a little time in humble prayer before God, there's probably some things that you could, that you would enjoy seeing God move in a supernatural, miraculous way, maybe in your life or the life of your family or the life of this community, that you could make as the object and the focus of this is why I'm fasting, is to pray for this reason and to seek God's face for this thing. So you have the focus, you have the attitude, you have the idea of what are you seeking, and the last one is time. How long are you going to fast? In this season of ministry with working bivocationally to say, well, I'm going to take a a day aside and I'm not going to eat and I'm going to use all of that time to devote that to prayer sounds really great. But it's not as practical in a workplace environment. Whereas if you had a day off or a day of vacation and you said, you know what, I'm going to take this Saturday and I'm just going to spend that entire Saturday and I'm just going to spend concentrated time in prayer and Bible reading. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to do the normal activities. This is what I'm going to do. You would be, you might be pleasantly surprised at the impact that would have on you. The question is, is how long? Some people will go into it and say, we're going to fast until God does something. The problem is, is I would encourage us to think we're going to have some defined timelines because if we go into it and say we're going to do it until God does something then sometimes Satan is all too quick, all too quick to get us to think, boy God acted fast, now back to a regularly scheduled programming. 
Whereas if we have a defined time, what we're going to do, then we're not sitting there going, oh, you know what, I, I, I'm going to fast for three weeks, and then you get one day into it, and you're looking for a way to get out. It's kind of like the New Year's resolutions or the diets. Sometimes we're always looking for a way to justify stopping. So that's why I encourage you, start with a meal. Maybe start with a day. If you want to work your way up and practice, the whole goal is is that you're seeking the face of God and you're seeking that intimacy with God. And I think I've been told that like when it comes to running, that when you start running and you run and you run and those endorphins kick in and you get to those points where you get past the the hyperventilation and all the things that come in my life when I start running... (laughs) And all the questions about why I have perfectly good running vehicles, why am I doing this, and and not being chased, and all those things that come. They say, when it comes to running, that you get past that point, and there's almost a euphoric, euphoric feeling that comes upon you in the whole act of running. I have experienced, on one level or another, personally, I've experienced that same sort of thing when it comes to fasting. Yeah, you get hungry. But when you're fasting with prayer and you're fasting with petition and you're fasting with the right attitude and you're fasting with the right focus and next thing you know, you start feeling like God is speaking to your heart and you start feeling like God is ministering to your soul and you start feeling like God is showing you things in His Word that you hadn't seen before and all of a sudden that clarity and that intimacy and that closeness and that connection and the next thing you're like, oh, you know what? This is, this is, this is good. This is real good. Once you get past that hump. So you may say, well, I'm going to start this and I'm going to just test the waters. I'm going to practice this. I'm going to see. I'm going to let God show Himself faithful to me. But let me encourage you to start off with just saying, well, let's talk about the time. I suspect and I submit to you that discipline is better practiced when we have a definition of what it looks like. So if you're going to fast, it doesn't have to be anything big. You may say, well, I'm going to fast, and instead of fasting from food for an entire meal, I'm just going to fast from this type of food for a meal. That's good. That's like saying I'm going to read my Bible today, I'm going to read the first two letters out of the first three words, and that, that's enough for reading my Bible. Come on now. Uh, we, can, we can give God more than that. So, what is fasting? Fasting is a tool. It's a tool that's vastly underused. But fasting is always practice that we see in the Bible as a sign of desperation dependence upon God. And we come and we fast. We're saying, God, we need you in a way that only by prayer and fasting we can seek your face and get your answers. So I would encourage you to fast.